All right, open your Bibles this morning. Luke chapter 10. We continue our studies through the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears he who excuse me. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my father, and no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of God. Words that Jesus spoke to his disciples and apostles long ago that are as fresh and meaningful, as powerful and living as they were when they came forth from the lips of the Son of God. And I pray that we would find ourselves receptive, Lord, to your word, that we would indeed have ears to hear what you're saying to us, eyes to see you revealed in the scripture. 
And by faith, Lord, we would hear and see and be changed in this moment of time. May everything that is said, even everything thought, be submitted to you and bring glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Success is measured differently depending on your endeavor. In business, success can be measured by the bottom line of your financial statement. You're either profitable or you're not. In education, success can be measured by your performance on certain standardized tests. In the military, success can be measured by whether or not you've achieved your strategic objective. The measures of success are different, but they are usually something quantifiable. More money, higher test scores, the acquisition of territory. These concepts are good so far as the world is concerned. You want to see results and you want to gain more resources. What about in the church? Are results and resources the true measure of success? We sometimes act as though these are the measure of spiritual success. If we have more money, more people, more land, bigger buildings, then we must be successful. The 70 disciples Jesus sent out thought they were successful because they could point to quantifiable results. Verse 17, it says, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They based their success on something they did, on the results of their ministry among the people. And the indication here, both in their statement and Jesus' response, is that they had joy because of what they accomplished. Jesus had a different perspective entirely on spiritual success. Although thrilled that his disciples were delivering people from demons and disease... He knew that the results of their ministry were not the true and abiding source of joy. He said in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It wasn't the results that brought abiding joy. And Jesus will go on to say that it isn't resources. Joy comes from your relationship with the Lord separate from the results of your ministry. Rejoicing comes from the revelation of Jesus, apart from your resources. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, joy in serving comes from your relationship with Jesus, not from the results. And number two, rejoicing in your spirit comes from the revelation of Jesus and not from resources. The bulk of our verses, verses 1 through 20, are under point number one, Joy in serving comes from your relationship with Jesus and not from the results. If spiritual success is measured by results, then guys like the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah were dismal failures. Jeremiah ministered for many, many years faithfully at the call of God at a time when God had determined to judge his people and bring them into captivity to the nation of Babylon. As far as we can tell, Jeremiah had no converts. See, there may have been one guy, but that's questionable. From any outward measure of success, Jeremiah was a dismal failure. But we read his uh, prophecies and we revere him as a faithful servant of the Lord because indeed he was.
in his instructions to the 70 disciples, Jesus indicated that they might not be received. He hoped for their reception, but he anticipated their rejection. Ministry is measured not by results, but by personal faithfulness. If your faithful ministry is received, man, that's great. If it is rejected, that's not so great for the people who reject it. But you can still have joy in your relationship with Jesus because you have faithfully carried out your mission. And so Jesus proposed a short-term mission again in verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now, some of your Bibles may say 72 Uh, Most of the manuscript evidence is in favor of this number 70. Why 70? Well, one possibility is that in the table of nations found in Genesis chapter 10, there are 70 Gentile nations that are listed. So Jesus had his 12 apostles representing his desire to reach all of Israel with her 12 tribes. And now he had 70 disciples representing at least a desire to reach the rest of the world. So if you have 12 disciples and or 12 apostles and 70 disciples, it's a way of communicating that your message is for the whole world, Jew and Gentile, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Verse two, then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this is an illustration. The word for harvest is for a particular phase of harvesting. It's a late harvest, a last harvest, which needs to be brought in quickly just before the crop spoils. And so it's a matter of urgency that the laborers get out into the fields. In our illustration, the reapers seem in no hurry. And so news is brought to the foreman called the Lord of the harvest. The idea is that he will exhort them to get out into the fields because we're at the end of the harvest. It's almost too late to bring in the remaining grain or fruit. Now, this is interesting to me because it is not really asking so much for more laborers as it is urging those who are already laborers to renew and redouble their efforts before the harvest had passed in jesus case he was on his way to jerusalem where he would be crucified this would be the last harvest as it were before his crucifixion and he was encouraging his servants his laborers those who were already following him to get out into that field now it's okay to pray that the lord would raise up more people to serve That's the usual understanding of this verse. We read this and we think, yeah, we need to pray that more people would get out into the harvest field. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think it's wonderful to see the Lord raise people up, bring people in for them to discover their gifts and their talents and their abilities and offer them up unto the Lord so that more and more people can be touched with the life-changing, life-saving message of Jesus Christ and his love for lost mankind. So there's nothing wrong with that, but this is uh, not the context for that. The Lord uh, isn't telling you that you need more people in order to accomplish his work. 
He's saying that what's necessary is that those who are already serving need to serve with a greater sense of urgency. And so it's a message for those of us who are believers. You and I believe that we're living in the last days just before Jesus Christ returns to earth. They were living just before he was going to be crucified and depart for heaven. We are living just before he's going to come back and rapture the church and then return in glory sometime after that. And so we need to constantly be renewed and refreshed in our attitude of urgency to be about the work of the Lord, just using the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God's given us in the way that he has called us to do that. Go your way, verse 3. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now we have our second illustration, lambs among wolves. Now, sometimes the ministry is like being a shepherd among sheep. And that, you know, I've never shepherded literal sheep, and I understand that there's a, a, you know, some aspects to it that are not pleasant. But generally speaking, when we think of the shepherd and the sheep, we have this kind of a calm, pastoral, you know, bubbling brook, green grass, sitting out playing a flute or something, you know, with a little campfire and cooking your vegetable stew. I mean, it's just, wow, the shepherd among sheep, what a blessing. And so Jesus says other times the ministry is like being a lamb among wolves. Lambs don't usually fare too well among wolves, I've noticed. Uh, they, they don't have too much natural defense. I've never seen really a lamb, you know, get angry. Man, that's an angry lamb, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I just don't... Uh, I just don't see lambs, you know, like puffer fish or with porcupine skin. I mean, they're just really defenseless. And so Jesus, one thing I love about Jesus is he doesn't ever hold back. He, he you know, we, we don't really do this to people sometimes. We, you know, we, we, we say, hey, how would you like to be used of God, man? The ministry, it's so glorious. <laughs> what? No, no, everything's fine. We don't want people to know sometimes what the ministry can really be like or nobody would do it. And so Jesus said, hey, guys, 70 of you guys, hey, I've got a mission for you. I'm going to send you out as lambs among wolves. Hey, thanks a lot, Lord. Uh, Man, I mean, who signs up for that, for lamb patrol? (laughs) Nobody. It's a potent picture to describe the dangers and difficulties of the ministry. You military guys, I mean, you know, you have all these stuff painted on the ships and on the airplane, you know, hornets, ah, lambs. You know, I dare you. you. Some of you guys rename your squadron the Lambs. You won't be seeing any action anytime soon, I'll tell you. Verse 4, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. Now, the first illustration, the laborer, the harvester, then the lambs among wolves. This is another one, that of a messenger. You should think in terms of our own Pony Express to get a feel for what's going on here. Travel light. Don't stop for unnecessary chit-chat along the way. Jesus isn't telling you to be a rude Christian, but to be urgent in delivering your message. And so, you know, they weren't to stop and, and uh, think, hey, you know, let's have a long conversation. How's the weather? What's going on? It's like a Pony Express rider. Man, those guys, you remember the old westerns, you know, and the, they practically, you know, jump off their horse, jump on another one. They're just riding, riding, riding. They, you know, grab an apple off the tree. And I mean, you're just, they're going for it. They don't have time for any distractions or anything. And that's the picture that the Lord was giving them. Because these were 
his advanced heralds or messengers who were sent out ahead of the approach of the king. And that's really their message, that the king is coming. Get ready for him. Verse 5, But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, or if, if it's received, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Now, this isn't really about missionary eating. And, and, and some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, when, when you're going on a foreign mission, you're going to the Philippines or Peru or Honduras or some exotic place like that that, you know, has, has different food. And they say, you know, it's going to be rude if you don't eat whatever's set before you. And, uh, but that, that's not what they're talking about here because they weren't going to Peru. They were just hanging out in, Jeru- in Israel where, you know, this was all common food. And so, you know, missionary eating, it's, it's rough. How many of you know what balut is? Raise your hand. Well, a few of you. Balut is a Filipino delicacy. Let me describe it for you. Balut is a partially gestated duck egg. So there's this little, little duck inside the egg. It's gestated by putting it in manure. And it kind of gestates in this manure pile because, you know, manure is warm and it helps gestate the egg. And at a certain point, at a very, you know, important point, the egg is removed from the pile of manure. And then a guy goes around town with a basket, maybe a Longaburger basket, I don't know. And you're sitting there in the Sea Breeze Hotel late at night wondering what you're doing in the Philippines. And outside you can hear the refrain, Balut, Balut. And you go out to see what it's all about. And there's Filipinos all around and crazy Americans shelling out a dollar an egg. And you're watching as they crack open this partially gestated duck egg and as they suck out its contents, and then as they spit out the feathers and the legs and the beak. Missionary eating is not what this is about. So, (laughs) what it is about is that they were to be content with whatever hospitality was shown to them. Here's what's going on. You go into a city and, and, and you start your ministry. Some of you are going to be invited in by wealthy, well-to-do individuals who want to show you hospitality. Others are going to be invited in by poor, not wealthy folks who want to show you hospitality. And Jesus says, whoever invites you in, whatever your situation ends up being, whether, you know, uh, wherever it is, just hang out there. That's the place that I've called you to go. Whatever they can feed you, eat. And so the picture really is, you know, it's not that you would go into a city and, and start looking for better lodging or better accommodations. From our viewpoint, we would say, well, why am I sent here and someone else sent over there? I don't know. 
That's the Lord's business. And so, again, we're to just be content uh, and to have joy, not in the house that we stayed at. I mean, it can be cool. I can imagine these 70 guys getting together and one of them saying, man, you can't believe the house that I stayed at. BMWs in the driveway. Well, probably not, but you know, that kind of thing. I think BMW made chariots, by the way, is where they first came from, so it's possible. All right. Just move on. You're still thinking about, you're trying to figure out where you can buy Balut this afternoon. So that's the idea. Now, messengers must have a message. Verse 9, heal the sick there, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The healings were to substantiate the message. The message of the kingdom meant to a Jew that the Messiah had arrived and thus they should receive him. Notice the simplicity of the message. The message was a straightforward statement of biblical facts that emphasized Jesus Christ. That should be able to be said of any message that you hear or you deliver. You ought to be able to say, wow, that was a straightforward presentation of biblical facts and the emphasis was on Jesus Christ. There are a lot of other things that we could talk about and background we could bring and things like that. And that's okay. We need to do that. But ultimately, was it simple? Was it straightforward? Was Jesus at the center of it? If not, I don't know how interested I really am in it. The 70 would not necessarily be received. Verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Now this, of course, we've talked about before, Jewish custom. If you were traveling outside of Israel in Gentile land, when you got back to the border, you would shake off the dust from you, indicating that you were happy to be back home and that you didn't want to bring Gentile cooties with you. It was really kind of, a, in, in one sense, Jesus didn't mean it this way, but in one sense it was, it was based on their ethnic prejudice, uh, you know, that the Jews were better and we don't want any Gentile dust here. If a Jew shook off dust in a Jewish home or in a Jewish city, it was a symbol saying, hey, you guys are acting like Gentiles who you hate. And you're as bad as the Gentiles that you hate because you didn't receive us And the kingdom of God, meaning the king, Jesus Christ, he's come, but you've rejected him. So very simple, but very powerful. Now, they could be faithful to their mission and to the message, but still be rejected. And so we have to conclude that rejection itself is not failure. Rejection is not failure. Verse 12, but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now that day is a reference to a time of judgment coming upon the earth. It anticipates that the Jews would ultimately reject Jesus and his offer of the kingdom. Some people scoff at the idea of a judgment day. 
Jesus mentioned three ancient cities which God supernaturally judged, and then he compared them to three contemporary cities. God has judged in the past. He still judges today. He will judge in the future. We just can't get it because we're, we're blind to the spiritual aspect of history. I've told you before that archaeologists and explorers have found two sister cities in a right where the Bible says they ought to be that were suddenly destroyed by a cataclysmic fire. And there's even a cave nearby where a guy and his two daughters might have hung out for a while. Now, you and I get all excited about that and say, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the Bible said, there's never been any doubt in your mind that they were real cities. Jesus referred to Sodom as a real city. If it wasn't a real city, then Jesus isn't God because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He didn't have the benefit of modern archaeology, I guess. And yet archaeologists, they found all of this and they say, but there's no evidence that it's Sodom and Gomorrah. All of the street signs are gone. And and so they won't admit it. Why? Not because it isn't Sodom and Gomorrah, but because to admit it is to admit that God intervenes in human history, and that's more than they want to say. Or I'm watching this the other day about, you know, the dinosaurs or some kind of beasts and how, you know, a hundred billion, trillion, zillion, gazillion years ago, a great catastrophe happened, and it must have been an asteroid hitting the earth. Couldn't have been a global flood just a few thousand years ago. Why? Why? Because then we'd have to admit that God judges and that there's a God that we need to deal with. So it's easier for me to believe that a hundred million, billion, gazillion years ago, a giant asteroid hit the earth and dinosaurs said, oh no, and they all died out. And then a hundred million, billion, gazillion years later, they sometimes still find dinosaurs that just recently died and they say, oh, living fossils. What a bunch of idiots. I mean, come on. How about the global flood? There's evidence all over the world for it. Nah, we're not into that. That's a religious concept, evidence aside. And so, judgment day, it's coming. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Oh, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They had this really Pentecostal ministry going on. I mean, they were casting out demons, and it was great. And it was great. Not only did they heal the sick, but demons were defeated and people were delivered. And they were pointing to this quantifiable result and claiming success. And the indication here is that was the basis of their joy. As if, if that didn't happen, well, then you don't have joy. And so Jesus wanted to give them the right perspective. In verse 18, he said to them, Guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I... I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus' statement about Satan's fall is an entire theology of the devil. It looks back to a time in eternity past when Satan was cast out of heaven, when Lucifer, God's chief angel, fell into pride and was cast out of heaven before he tempted Adam and Eve. And then it covers his continued falling throughout human history until finally in the revelation of Jesus Christ, Satan is described as being cast down to the earth. 
then cast farther down into the earth, into the bottomless pit, and then finally cast all the way down into the lake burning with fire for all eternity. You want to understand the career of Lucifer or Satan? He exalted himself and he's been falling through history ever since. Cast out of heaven, the prince of the power of the air, with access to heaven and earth, cast down to earth in the tribulation, cast into the bottomless pit at the end of the tribulation, cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's the devil. Now the point here is that it was Jesus who gave the 70 their authority over Satan and the demons. The major point is this, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It wasn't the result that they should be excited about, but their relationship to Jesus Christ. Not the gift of exorcism, but the giver of all good things. There is in heaven a book. It's called in Scripture the Lamb's Book of Life. The names of all saved individuals are written there. How those names get there or when they get there is a matter of some controversy. I personally believe all the living have their names written there from the time of their conception. And those who die having rejected Jesus have their names blotted out. Because there are references to your name being blotted out of the book of life. But I don't want to get off track with all that. That's for another study when we get to Revelation. There's a very simple but enormously important point to all of this. And we've made it already several times, but it's worth reemphasizing. Results are never the reason that you have joy serving the Lord. You have joy serving Jesus despite the outward results because it is Jesus that you serve. Your relationship itself, apart from external measurements of success, is your constant source of joy. I mentioned Jeremiah. There are many others who had marginal or little success in their serving God. And yet we rightly revere and respect them as faithful men and women. There's a whole bunch of people in Hebrews chapter 12 who are hunted and persecuted, living in caves, sawn in half, their heads cut off. And yet they're revered as servants of the Lord. On the other end of the spectrum, there's Jonah. Perhaps the greatest single revival in the history of the world. The entire city of Nineveh turning to God, repenting of their sin. The only message was, 40 days from now I'm going to destroy you. And they thought, on their own, without even an altar call, we'd better repent and maybe God will be merciful. And he was. Great revival. Different, you know, whether it was hundreds of thousands or millions of people that were saved. Jonah didn't want to go, didn't like being there, didn't like it afterwards, was upset with God that he saved them. Outwardly, man, Jonah. I want to have a Jonah ministry. Not too many people name their ministry after Jonah because you understand his heart wasn't right, his spirit. And so we don't want these outward measurements. 
They're not where we derive our joy. Jonah had no joy from the outward success of his ministry. Others can have great joy despite the outward rejection of their ministry. The remaining verses, rejoicing in your spirit comes from the revelation of Jesus and not from resources. Jesus, as I mentioned, was on his way to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. His apostles and disciples still did not understand what was happening. Jesus, though, is described as rejoicing in his spirit. He had a deep, settled joy that could not be quenched, could not be restrained. I want some of that. And God wants us all to have it, to have a rejoicing spirit. There's a clue in Jesus' prayer as to how we can rejoice in our spirit. He says it's because of the revelation God gives to us. Verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Jesus breaks out into a spontaneous prayer, apparently right in front of everybody. I think we should do this more often. Uh, it's, first of all, it's spiritual and biblical, but it's just it would be cool and blow people's minds too. Next time you're with somebody and you're just talking back and forth, just, you know, just jump in and say, Oh, Father, and just go into prayer and, oh, man, freak them out. No? All right. We should do this. The wise and the prudent in this instance obviously refers to unbelievers. Wisdom and prudence, therefore, summarize the resources of this world. Wisdom would describe intangible resources like education. Prudence would describe tangible resources. People who are prudent, we think, are good with money and property, with the accumulation of wealth. And so the wise in Jesus' analogy, in this analogy, are folks who value and pursue the world's wisdom. The prudent are folks who value and pursue the world's wealth. They think they are mature compared to believers because believers act more like babies who trust that their daddy will take care of them. And they're not as interested in this world's wisdom and wealth. It is not wrong to be wise and prudent with the resources of the world that God puts at our disposal. The point, though, is this. You do not need them in order to rejoice in your spirit. Nothing you can obtain in the world can ever compare with the simple knowledge of Jesus Christ gained by God revealing himself to you. People get troubled over this phrase, God has hidden these things. They think God hides himself from certain people, only revealing himself to a selected few. Well, that cannot be true because of many things Jesus said. One of them was this, and I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. It's really very simple. People who value and pursue the resources of this world are distracted by this world. They are busy piling up wisdom and wealth for themselves on earth. And so they miss the revelation of God all around them through creation and through their own conscience and in the commandments of Scripture. They drown out their sense of spiritual emptiness by convincing themselves that the next plateau of worldliness, once achieved, is going to satisfy and fill them. And so, you know, people have a drive. 
People who aren't Christians, they have a drive. We call it an emptiness. They might not say it's that, and so that's okay. That They have some kind of a drive, and, and, and there's something that they're lacking and they're going for. And there's a thought, like a carrot on a stick, that as soon as I get to the next plateau, when I get the next car, when I get the next job, when I get the next house, when I get the next husband or the next wife, then I will be full and fulfilled. And Jesus is letting us know that it doesn't profit you to gain the whole world if you lose your soul. And so they try to drown this out in this pursuit of wisdom and wealth. And we're much better off as God's dear children, just trusting in the Lord and using whatever it is he gives us. Jesus breaks off from praying to address everyone who was following him. Verse 22, all things have been delivered to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. One author commented on this verse by saying, only God can reveal God. If you want to know God, to see God, to hear God, to touch God, he has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and no one else. Jesus Christ is everything that God has to say to mankind. To whom does Jesus will to reveal God? Well, it's the whole world of lost mankind. For God so loved the world. God is not willing that any should perish. Verse 23, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, to hear what you hear. And have not heard it. And you know what? We've seen and heard more than even these guys. Because we have the word of God in its completion. And so the next time you're feeling a little bit low or lowly or or as if, you know, whatever. Just think, hey, I'm better off than all the prophets and any of the kings. Because I have a simple revelation of Jesus Christ. It is revelation and not resources that is the true source of our rejoicing. Now, it should be obvious that resources are not the basis for rejoicing, but it's not. We still describe people and churches as being blessed based upon quantifiable measurements in the number of people that attend, in the amount of the offering that's taken in, in the size of the building that they have, those kinds of things. And we're, we're just prone to that. You have to admit it. We're prone to that as human beings. We take the standards of the world, the measure of the world, and we bring it into our Christian life, we bring it into the church life, and there's a lot of sadness and grief and discouragement when Jesus says, I want your joy to be full. You are never going to be happy, or joyous, I should say, serving the Lord if you are looking at the results. You're never going to be rejoicing in your spirit the way God wants you if you're looking at your resources. Because there's always a greater result that you can seek. There are always greater resources. Here's something to think about in terms of outward standards and resources. You know, a lot of times people get into, uh, you know, and, and everybody says this, and I'm not rebuking anybody, but, you know, people say, oh, yeah, this church, this is the biggest church in town. This is the biggest church, the largest church in the state. And the idea, you say that because you're saying, and God has blessed it. Some of the biggest gatherings in the last days will be cults. 
Jesus or Paul said that in the last days there'll be doctrines of demons and people will be led astray into false religions. And so it can't be numeric. It can't be those kinds of things. We want to think the way Jesus thought. He sent the 70 out. They were successful. He was excited. Don't get me wrong. Success is great because people are hearing about God and having their lives changed for, for time and eternity. But he said, don't trust in that. Don't count on that. It's not res- results and resources that is your source of joy. There's too much emphasis on externals and it takes away from joy and rejoicing. Instead, you and I are to enjoy our relationship with God right where we find ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. They are indeed very deep, Lord, on a personal level. They speak to us in our hearts, in our spirit, because we are so often influenced by worldly attitudes and worldly ideas about size and and strength, about resources and results. And Lord, praise be to you that there would be results from the ministry, that people would get saved, that lives would be changed. Praise you, Lord, for resources that more ministry could take place. We're not talking about that. We're talking about our personal, intimate joy, knowing you, serving you. As long as we're faithful, Lord, the results in, in that sense don't matter. They matter to the people who reject us because they're rejecting you. And we can serve you, Lord, with or without resources. We're thankful for them. We want to be wise and prudent in using them unto you and for your glory. But the, the sheer quantity of our resources is not a cause for rejoicing. The rejoicing that we want to do, Lord, is that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. To that effect, Lord, I want to pray for folks here in the service this morning whose names may not be written in your book. In the sense, Lord, that they have not yet received Jesus Christ and should they die without Christ, their names would be blotted out. I pray for them, Lord. I pray that they would come forward after the service and give their heart and life to you in humble submission to the drawing of your Holy Spirit to the kingdom of God. Lord, we now just commit these things to you as our faithful God and Savior. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. After the service, some of our guys will be down here and they'll pray with you and share with you about anything that's on your heart. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer or you're not sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven, then come on down and let these guys pray with you and share the good news about Jesus Christ, His salvation, which is costly but free to you. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh